everyone. Um, thanks so much, Jody, and the rest of the Studio Center. It's always amazing to be here. I, I love this place. I was deathly ill last time I was here, and I'm hoping desperately that that doesn't happen again. Um, I'm going to read two new short stories. I've never read either of them out loud, and I'm a little nervous about that. But they're from a, a collection I'm kind of working on. They're not related, and they're different than Swallowed by the Cold. Um, the first is called North-South Axis. There was dog shit on the sidewalk, then it rained, and there was not dog shit on the sidewalk. William was glad. The dog that produced this shit was not a dog that belonged to William, and yet he'd felt responsible for the mess when he considered its presence on the sidewalk directly in front of his apartment building. In this building, William lived on the second floor, upstairs from a pair of young women whom he liked, both teachers at a school for troubled boys, and downstairs from an older man whom he did not care for one bit and who owned a dog capable of producing large shits. But the rain. It had arrived unexpectedly. For all its cleansing properties, the rain was a disappointment. He had planned for a walk. It was a Tuesday. On Tuesday afternoons, William frequently took walks on the trail that skirted north-south, the foot of the mountain at the eastern edge of town. The trail was once a railroad track that stretched the length of the river that crossed the county in which William, ill-advisedly, had lived now for several years. Decades before, this railroad serviced the mills and logging interests of the town and others near it, bringing the goods that such operations produced to the large lake on the northern stretch of the west western border of the state. Then, by means of canals and locks and a second greater river to the north, these goods, this inventory of somewhat primitive natural resource, raw oak and maple planks and wool and gravel made from crushed granite quarried from deep scars in the land, was sent off to larger cities, more populous states, where it was packaged and traded and exchanged. Those days were long gone, and the houses that those fortunes built were all, as Williams was, far into a process of decay and rot. Most Tuesdays, Williams spent his afternoons among the muck and bicyclists and weekday hikers and a group of seniors forever out on their daily excursions who were always cheery and kind and did not, as best William could tell, resent even one bit that as they approached the ends of their lives, all that was left for them was William to wave hello meekly on this muddy trail full of ghosts. Upstairs, he prepared a meal. He made a marinade for tofu cubed with a sharp knife. He chopped vegetables. He watched the rain. It was really coming down, a thick stream washing between the valley-like edges of the gabled roof. The roof intersected directly beside William's kitchen window, and the bottom of the rush of rain at the bottom of the rush of rainwater from the roof was a large pool of mud-darkened water that grew perceptibly outward from the nearest corner of the parking area. If the heat returned soon enough, the water might dry, and he may not lose the tulip bulbs that he'd recently planted in a patch of grassy soil that was now saturated as a result of this unexpected and unexpectedly powerful storm. In the walk, peanut oil continued to hiss as it warmed. Facts regarding William's upstairs neighbor. The man's name was James. He was 57 years old. He owned a red convertible Mazda Miata, which William had never once seen moved from its spot in the shared parking area, but which James, according to no schedule or pattern that William could discern, covered and then uncovered with a blue tarp held down carelessly by two bungee cables. William placed the cubed tofu in the wok, quickly moving his hand to avoid the spittle of oil that jumped from the hot pan. He then poured the marinade over the tofu to a deeper, wetter sound, 
Finally, he carefully placed the vegetables in the wok and stirred the whole mixture with a large wooden spoon. The kitchen filled with a sweet smell. William whistled a little bit as he pushed the food about with his spoon. What troubled William mostly about James was the lack of causal relationship between the tarp and the weather. One day it might be, as it was the previous Friday, sunny and warm, and the car would be covered, the edges of the tarp worrying themselves beneath the bungee cables in a gentle wind. Today it was raining, and there in the parking area, the Miata sat uncovered and soaking wet. Concerning choice, specifically the free will, free will of others, William was not a rigid thinker. But why would James choose to leave his car exposed to a storm such as the one that currently lashed the northern part of the state, according to the weather, weather radar app on William's phone? Why would he likewise choose to cover the car when the sun might conceivably dry it out, prevent mildew and mold? There was no rational foundation behind these decisions. William was certain of this. While he did not much care whether the results of such decisions might be fairly evaluated as reasonable or unreasonable, William was discouraged by what he perceived to be a lack of even the slightest forethought. Surely James must have also observed that his car was wet when it needn't be, or that his dog shit where it ought not to shit. Surely James's subjective experience of the world could not be that far from William's own. Was it possible, for instance, that James, watching his dog shit two feet from the front steps of the apartment building, might regard himself were he to reflect long and thoughtfully enough as a reasonable man, a responsible pet owner? According to an article that William had once read on the internet, dogs tended to relieve themselves with their bodies aligned on a north-south axis. For the dog, there was an evolutionary imperative, an explanation. William stirred the food in the wok, inspected the broccoli carefully before turning the heat down. Momentarily, William resigned himself to forces greater than himself. The dog shit were the dog shit not because there was something wrong with the dog. The dog was simply being its most dog self. For reasons that were a mystery to Williams, dogs have a magnetic preference about where they are standing when they defecate. Like the rail trail, his front walkway was aligned along a north-south axis. That a dog shit there with some frequency was an annoyance, but also an inevitability. In this, William found some comfort. Perhaps James operated according to a similar and equally mysterious bodily impulse with regards to his car. And if this were true, then it must also be true of William himself. He turned the stove off and served himself two heaping spoonfuls of the tofu and vegetables on an orange plate. He poured a glass of red wine and sat at the small kitchen table. Outside, the rain continued, but to the west, the sun had dipped beneath the clouds along the horizon, and a bright line of orange and deeply saturated yellow burned its way in through William's front window and rested uncomfortably across his face. What, he wondered as he rose to draw the blinds, was his own north-south axis. William returned to his meal. He raised his glass to his lips to take a sip of his wine, which was good, earthy for its varietal, but drinkable. Indeed, the sun did not rise nor fall. The fact of its visibility on the horizon, the light now slightly deeper in hue, had nothing whatsoever to do with the sun itself, but rather with the rotation of the earth. Also, the clouds had moved off toward the east at precisely the time to allow the sun to be seen at the, on the horizon, something to do with convection in the mountain, who really knew? These were modest observations, of course. Still, the thought settled into him. The sun did not set, the clouds would not always obscure the coming night, the earth rotated, and from our fixed position on this earth, the sun gradually became not visible. And in that way, another day passed, and then another. The immaturity of this thinking embarrassed William, as if there were someone else present to hear it. And he quickly finished what wine was left in his glass before pouring himself a second. He took a mouthful, 
opened his lips to let in some air, let the wine roll over his tongue, read the copy on the wine's label. He might have, after all, tasted a nutty undertone peculiar to this appellation, but who could honestly tell such things? Another thought occurred to William. Assuming the observation, this observation regarding dogs' preferences was correct, the east-west axis had no bearing on where dogs chose to relieve themselves. All that mattered was that the animal's face, and accordingly its backside, was facing either north or south. The fact, that is, of William's front step was negligible. One hundred yards due west, and the dog might have found an equally suitable place. James could have crossed the street to the lot that, has since, that was since the demolition of the bread and breakfast that burned down last year under mysterious circumstances, empty and overflowing with tall grass and the last remaining bits of the House of Stone Foundation. The solution was simple. What irritated William was that James surrendered to this instinct in his dog. The dog only needed to be allowed to face due north or due south, whichever its preference. There was, William surmised, as he found his irritation with James inching his way out of his thoughts and into his body, into his fingers as they gripped the glass of wine, no particular reason the dog should have been allowed to shit where it did. The only explanation was that James was inconsiderate and selfish. It was an unusual time of year for a thunderstorm. Outside, one seethed. Further facts regarding James. He was English, raised, William thought he remembered, in the Lake District, a beautiful place in the north of England William had himself once visited. It reminded him a little bit of the town where he and James now live, but more barren, fewer trees, though equally lush and verdant in other ways. James was a musician. He had had some success in a minor rock and roll band in the 1980s. He dressed accordingly. A black leather motorcycle jacket, thinning hair kept long and swept to the sides of his head with too much hairspray. William finished his second glass of wine and poured a third. He speared a final piece of broccoli with his fork, placed this in his mouth, and arranged the knife and fork on his plate to indicate that he was finished. Then he sat as the light changed in the room about him, and he drank his wine until he had almost forgotten about James and the dog. In their place, he thought for a little while about a play by Henrik Ibsen. He couldn't recall the title, but remembered that its main character had shot herself with a pistol. It was his sophomore year in college when he'd first read the play, and all of its details, apart from the pistol, were lost to him, but he remembered the feeling of arriving at the play's end, an unable sensation of both recognizing and being shocked by the character's actions. Then he wondered if that was a part of growing old, remembering what was complicated and impossible to define while losing simple facts. Now that it was dark, he opened the blinds to the impatient view of the street, and beyond that, the empty lot, its grass, grass beneath the streetlight trampled by the storm about the rain. As the evening progressed, the rain tapered off west to east. William determined this direction first by the regularity of weather patterns and second by the visibility of stars from the window on the west-facing wall and then, roughly two hours later, the east. By his fourth glass of wine, William was drunk. All that was left of the room of the storm was the steady trickle of water from the gutter. Lately, he'd been letting the dishes sit until morning. He was watching the news on low volume, a story about a woman in Louisiana who had rescued seven dogs from what the reporter kept calling an unfortunate situation. She said this over and over. William watched the report. They showed nearly a minute of a clip of the dogs, healthy and rehabilitated now, playing together on a bright green lawn. The, the woman looked on proudly with crossed arms as the dogs tackled one another, barked, nipped at scruff. It was probably the wine, but William teared up at the thought inside of these dogs. He heard the front door of the apartment building open two days into the week's weather forecast. His favorite meteorologist was delivering the weather report from the scene of a fundraiser at the Ecology Museum located on the shore of the lake. 
phosphate levels were too high, farmers to blame. William first heard James's dog's claws on the wooden staircase, then James's voice, deep, muffled by the stairs and walls, the front door slamming shut, James's heavy steps on the stairs and in the hall as they passed William's door. Here James must have overtaken the dog because William heard James scold the dog, tell it to go upstairs. Soon, William heard the sound of James's door closing, then more steps, shuffling, kitchen sounds. William poured another glass of wine and listened. He watched the digital clock on his cable box to see if he could catch the change the minute. Even a minute requires enormous concentration. Three minutes passed before he was able to hold his attention to the clock long enough to see a six become a seven. At first, he thought it was the dog barking, but gradually the sound became clear, a deep rumbling peal of laughter grew louder and louder from a spot directly above where William sat on his couch. He turned his face toward the ceiling as if it were possible to see James up there, doubled over, hand of, hands on his knees. He expected the laughter would stop soon, just something funny on television, but it kept going, and William couldn't decide, even after a few minutes, if it was laughter or sobbing. Though he was interested in the topic, he muted a special report on a wind turbine project proposed to be built on a nearby mountaintop and tried as best he could to reconcile what he was hearing. That's, that's one story. Hi, Cole. Are there more of you? Oh, thanks. Did more of my students come, or is it just you? Oh, Cole. And you even, and you even wore a tie. I know that's not for me, but I'm going to pretend that it is. This next story is called Drought. I took some liberties with Johnson geography in that first story. Sorry to disappoint. The story is called Drought. Her great uncle Gerald had died. Amy just finished reading an email that contained a scanned photograph of his obituary clipped by her Aunt Mary Margaret from the Miami Herald. The obituary did not indicate cause of death, but Amy knew that he'd had some heart trouble recently. The news of his death did not surprise her. It also did not make her particularly sad. Still, she printed the clipping, watched the paper skulk from the printer on her desk, then she held the obituary in her hand, the paper still soft from the ink, and looked at the small, grainy black and white picture of Gerald in his service uniform in a way that she thought might indicate her grief if any of her employees happened to walk by her open office door. The obituary was mainly concerned with Gerald's love of baseball. He'd also been a sergeant in the Army, and he operated a bar in Miami Beach for 40 years, and he'd left money to the Boys and Girls Club in Westview, which the obituary writer, who was probably Aunt Mary Margaret, seemed somehow equally proud of and disappointed by. Secondary to these topics was Gerald's dislike for his home state of Wisconsin. He had lived in Miami for more than 60 years, and apart from infrequent visits and his lifelong support of the Green Bay Packers, Gerald, the obituary writer made clear, wanted nothing whatsoever to do with his home. Amy was curious frequently about the notion of home. In her own case, she had tried but failed to move away and was increasingly convinced she'd end her life where it started. There are worse fates, of course. She'd been born in the small Central Valley town where her grandfather had arrived as a migrant in the 1930s from Wisconsin to work first on a dairy farm and then later start a well drilling operation that made him very rich. Her father took over this business when his father died. Amy had grown up accordingly in comfort. She went to the state university, university located fewer than 20 miles to the south in Fresno, 
Her junior year, she had taken an art history course with a required travel component, and she spent two wonderful weeks in Florence and Milan, where she visited countless museums and cathedrals. On her flight home, she'd vowed to her seatmate, a sickly girl with vision so poor she needed a magnifying glass to read her textbook, to spend at least the early part of her adult life traveling the world, seeing all that she could. But not long after making this promise, she graduated, summa cum laude, from the university with a degree in accounting. Her mother threw a party for her to celebrate this milestone, and all Amy's friends came and lingered about the pool and sipped cocktails mixed poorly by the nervous Martyrosian boy, the neighbor from three houses down whom her mother had hired to play the role of waiter. He even wore a white suit coat. As the party wound down, guests trickling out of the gate on the side of the house as dusk began to settle, her father approached, he gave her a hug, and presented her with a business card that read in ornate script, Amy Suzanne Murphy, Chief Financial Officer. I had this mocked up for you, he said. He grabbed her forearm at the wrist, a gesture of his she knew well. Robert will be retiring soon enough. If you put in the effort and the hours, the job is yours when the time comes. He smiled and leaned in to give her a kiss on her cheek. Over the years, she had made it to Mexico a number of times, was proud of the fact that she'd visited the Pacific and Gulf Coasts each frequently. For a short period, she even owned a 1 share in a condo in a small village outside Cabo, where she visited a few times before selling her share in order to finance a new car. But she never lived anywhere away from home. The house she bought was less than a mile from her parents' place, and she saw them every day. She never married, but every two years or so managed to entangle herself into a complicated and usually painful affair with a man, often from work, once from church, and increasingly from the internet. In addition to obituaries, Aunt Mary Margaret frequently sent holiday-themed napkins and paper plates in the mail. All of these Amy kept on a shelf in her pantry, never opening a single package. Since Aunt Mary Margaret's later-than-normal conversion to email, she had sent the decorative paper goods much less frequently, but the shelf in Amy's pantry was still overflowing with floral Easter cake plates and glittery New Year's cocktail napkins. Apart from a minor car accident in Fresno, in which Amy had broken the pinky finger on her left hand, nothing all that tragic had ever happened to her. There were breakups, minor heartbreaks, of course, but nothing out of the ordinary. She did not have a pet that would grow old and die, no children to risk childhood cancers, no husband to betray her singular trust. She worked out three times a week, rarely drank more than a glass or two of, of wine at a time, did not smoke, and enjoyed skiing and hiking equally. She was in good shape for 37 years and had been given a diagnosis of perfect health at her most recent physical. Compare this to her employee Esmeralda, who was obese and could often be heard wheezing on warm days. Amy pitied her. In the last year alone, Esmeralda's husband had left her for another woman. Her son, Orlando, had been injured in the line of duty in Afghanistan and lost both of his legs. And her youngest daughter had spilled a pot of boiling water on her chest and thighs, causing severe burns. Miraculously, Esmeralda had not missed a single day of work to attend to these tragedies, though of course Amy would have allowed this if only Esmeralda had asked. She read the obituary again, scanning for information on where to send flowers and curious to see whether she might uncover the architecture of some unspoken family drama regarding where Gerald should be interred. She supposed it would be Miami, where the funeral was to be held and where the address for the funeral home was located. Gerald had lived there so long. He attended Mass at St. Joseph's, where the services were to take place in three weeks' time, according to the notice at the bottom of the obituary. But Aunt Mary Margaret was stubborn, and Amy knew her father would do whatever his cousin wanted if this meant avoiding a conflict. Apart from Gerald, 
All of the Murphy family lived either in California or in Wisconsin. Aunt Mary Margaret might very well insist that Gerald be laid to rest in Wisconsin at the Murphy family plot. In this case, at least, a visit in his honor would not require travel to a place that meant nothing to any of them now that Uncle Gerald was gone. She'd tried to see Gerald only a year before. There had been a conference in Fort Lauderdale for small business owners in the construction industry. Amy had arranged to go, hoping to meet other young professionals, perhaps discover some vision of her own for the company and its future under her leadership, new partners perhaps, or more exciting new markets. The drought had brought some difficult years. Her guilt over the nature of the company had likewise become difficult. A day might be going along just fine when she would be on Facebook and run across one of those time-lapse videos of a lake up north that showed the dramatic effects of the drought on water levels in the state. On those days, she'd need an extra glass of wine or two at night to find sleep. Her father had been gradually retiring from his position as CEO, and Amy was stepping into this new role. He owned the building and most of the equipment, and Amy would pay the lease on these items at once funding her father's retirement and also purchasing the business and its various holdings from him. They agreed that whatever balance was left by the end of a six-year period would be her inheritance, whether her father had died yet or not. The day she arrived in Fort Lauderdale, it was hot, and she was sweating through her shirt before she'd even reached the curbside pickup for the shuttle bus to the rental car facility. The conference was spread across two separate banquet rooms in a hotel near the airport. It rained the first day, a storm that arrived almost simultaneous to her checking into the hotel. The second day was sunny, but wickedly hot, and Amy did not leave the hotel for longer than a few minutes it took to walk from one building to the other. She spent her evenings in the bar, making awkward small talk and failing to connect with anyone in a meaningful way. By 10.30 on the second night, whatever vision she may have hoped to discover had been obscured behind the ill-fitting pants and crew cuts and obvious indentations on ring fingers where wedding bands normally sat. She emptied her half-full glass of wine into a potted palmetto by the elevator and went up to her room. On the third day, the heat broke, and she decided to skip the conference events and drive to Miami to see Gerald. She didn't bother to call him ahead of time. He lived in an assisted living facility in Miami Beach. Aunt Mary Margaret always made sure to send pictures whenever she visited, and Amy felt in some small way that she knew the place, though she herself had not ever been. There was a view of the water from Gerald's bedroom window. On I-95 South, she hit traffic and was glad she'd paid the small fee to the rental car company for the toll pass when she saw the sign indicating that she could merge onto the expressway. In no time, she was exiting the freeway and driving by means of several bridges to the east toward a hazy line of tall buildings on the horizon. Aunt Mary Margaret frequently wrote emails to Amy about her visits with Uncle Gerald. A major subject of these emails was the traffic problem in Miami Beach. Traffic was a real nightmare, as you know, and it's getting worse. Her emails often affected the casual tone people used to indicate that they have more experience with a thing than might be assumed. But as Amy made her way across the island and experienced the weight at each stoplight, the honking horns, the loud music from convertibles stranded in intersections, the motor scooters and throngs of people dragging coolers and beach chairs toward the water, she began to suspect that perhaps Aunt Mary Margaret had not been exaggerating. This made Amy nervous, and so she parked her rental car several blocks away from Uncle Gerald's place in the parking lot of a Walgreens housed in a building painted so white it hurt her eyes. In the end, traffic was no less complicated for her on foot, though she was more flexible in her options regarding one-way streets and a funny little section where the road had been torn up, large boulders of concrete and asphalt crowded onto the sidewalk directly in front of an erotic art museum. Come to light, 
The sign above the black windowed front door read. By midday, it was oppressively hot, though thick clouds had begun to crowd the sky and there was a musty smell in the air as if rain was imminent. Gerald's apartment building was on the north side of South Beach, two blocks in from the water. It was a wide, six-storied building decorated on the broad stucco wall above the entryway with the sunrise motif carved into the facade. As she entered the building, Amy tried to remember that she wanted to Google Art Deco architecture when she got back to her hotel. Inside, the air conditioning was so powerful that she instinctively hugged herself, briskly rubbing her hands up and down her arms. There was an expansive area with a lobby with an area with a shiny reflective white tile floor and beyond that an open entrance to what appeared to be a hallway that led back into the building. This was obscured by a long flowing linen curtain that shrugged in the air that the ceiling fan pushed about the space. Amy approached the reception desk, behind which a young woman was speaking loudly into a phone. When she saw Amy, the woman placed the phone on the desk and said warmly, Hello, can I help you? I'm here to see my uncle, Amy said. The woman pushed a guest registry book across the desk to Amy. You have to sign in, she said. Is he expecting you? I'm only in Florida for a couple of days, Amy said. I thought I'd surprise him. That's sweet of you. Some of our residents don't get any visitors. Amy began to fill out the information the registry required. As she finished writing her cell phone number and home address, the woman said, It's a lot, I know. We've had some trouble with visitors, mostly distant relatives looking for money or else drugs in the medicine cabinet. Of course, Amy said. You wouldn't believe what people will do to their loved ones, the woman said. When Amy had finished with the registry, she replaced the pen and closed the book. Do you know your uncle's apartment number, the woman asked. I've never visited before, Amy said. The woman opened the registry, scanned with a finger until she reached Amy's entry, and mouthed to herself as she typed into the computer, Gerald Murphy, Gerald Murphy. Amy smiled as she waited, kept her eyes on a large mole on the woman's chest below her collarbone. He's in 507, the woman said. I'll let you surprise him. Jerry's such a sweetie. I'm sure he'll be happy to see his niece. Apartment 507 was the door located closest to the stairwell. She remembered this detail from one of Aunt Mary Margaret's emails, actually. Aunt Mary Margaret was always delighting in inconsequential details. Amy knocked. She waited for a few seconds and then knocked again. There was a single window in the hallway, a small frosted glass circle framed by a sunset motif. This one made out of metal, perhaps aluminum or chrome. The sunset reflected what little light there was in the hallway brightly. There was still no answer at the door. She had the number right, 507. Perhaps, perhaps Uncle Gerald was sleeping, or perhaps he'd gone out. It occurred to Amy that she had almost no idea about his day-to-day -day life. Downstairs, the woman behind the desk seemed unconcerned that Gerald had not been home. He's probably at the beach, she said when Amy returned. Most of our residents spend a lot of time at the beach if they're healthy enough to go out. Right, Amy said. And can you blame them, the woman said. It's so beautiful down here. It's gorgeous, Amy said. Really pretty. I'm from Georgia, but this is home for me. I'm in it for the long haul. I love Miami, the woman said. She reached for her phone and held it up as if she were about to make a call. Maybe they'll even let me have a place here when it's time to put me out to pasture. The woman laughed at this. That would really be something, Amy said, surprising herself. I'm sure he'll be home soon if you want to come back. Take a walk. There's plenty to do down here. I will, Amy said. Thanks. She felt the first raindrops before she'd even made it a block from Uncle Gerald's place. There were big, thick drops that in no time darkened the sidewalks, and then the wind picked up and the rain came down heavily and loud, immediately filling the gutters with water and soaking Amy through. She took cover in the first shop she passed, a tourist place with an enormous display of jewelry made with shark teeth. 
necklaces, earrings, a ridiculous-looking headband with teeth arranged along the top in a way she assumed was meant to suggest a shark's open mouth. That was a year ago. In her office, she put Uncle Gerald's obituary down on her desk. She wondered briefly if Aunt Mary Margaret was punishing her for not seeing Uncle Gerald in Florida before he died. It was odd that she hadn't gotten an email before the obituary was published or that her father hadn't called with the news. She didn't think that anyone had known about her trip to Miami. It was reasonable to travel for business and be unable to make time to visit with distant family. No one would begrudge her that, and no one, as far as she knew, was even aware that she'd tried to see Uncle Gerald, but then found herself exhausted from the storm and the little tourist shop and had decided to drive to her hotel and not wait for Uncle Gerald to come back from the beach or wherever he was. But she could not shake the feeling that the timing of the news of his passing had been planned by Aunt Mary Margaret to communicate something to her. The receptionist must have told Uncle Gerald that Amy had visited, and when she didn't return, Uncle Gerald, offended, must have called Aunt Mary Margaret to tell her. Amy was a nervous person, a fingernail biter, a fidgeter. She sat at her desk and ran her fingers along the edges of the obituary, pushed the paper back and forth, folded one of the corners, unfolded it. Outside her open office door, her employees passed on their way from one task to another, all of them there for her, and yet not a single one turned to look. No one said hello. She pulled the obituary nearer to her to determine to find some clue as to Aunt Mary Margaret's motivations. Much loved father, she read. Brother and uncle, Gerald James Murphy, passed from this life to his eternal home beside his beloved savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you.